following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Just explaining what has happened here, this is the uh, time of the right after the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. That's all the talk, all the buzz of Jerusalem. And then, of course, uh, even Lazarus, if you look in 12.9, was on the target list of the Jewish leaders who said, well, we might have to kill him too, along with Jesus, to put down this popular revolution. Then came the triumphal entry, and of course the leaders were upset about that. And I'm picking up just the the last statement of the Jewish leadership in verse 19, and then I'll read forward through verse 33. John 12, beginning at 19. The leaders, the Pharisees, said to one another, Can you see that we are gaining nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And this is God's holy word. Seventy-one years ago, last week was a very tense and critical time for the Western world in the midst of World War II. General Dwight Eisenhower was the supreme commander of Allied forces in that war, and you may recall that he was in command of about half a million American, British, and Canadian troops, all who were gathered in Great Britain, in England, 
and they were literally poised on the shores of England, ready to cross the channel to the Normandy coast of France in what was called Operation Overlord that we know today simply as D-Day. But it was a troubling time, how to launch, when to launch, how to conduct this absolutely massive military invasion. And the weather was being very uncooperative. Eisenhower needed a night that was nearly full moon, and there were certain preferences as far as what the tides would be doing for the landing craft, but the weather was their enemy. And I believe they had intended to go on June 4th, but that was not possible. But finally, late in the evening, on June 5th, 1944, Ike got the meteorologist's report that they could expect a break, a window in the weather, for the next morning, June 6th. And so Eisenhower and his consultants all talked together and reviewed all the factors. And finally, Eisenhower said, let's go. And with that simple command, the end stage of World War II in Europe began. Let's go. Well, I see something rather like that as we come here back to the chapter of John chapter 12 after a several months side path studying in the Old Testament and the life of David. I had paused that previous study here just as I told you that the gospel has come to this pivotal point The triumphal entry into Jerusalem has happened, and from this point onwards, the entire gospel of John through chapter 21 really concerns events of the last week, one week in the life of Jesus Christ, of course, the last week of his life. And it is the turning point of the whole gospel right here, so a great place for us to start in again. There's an unseen clock ticking here, the clock of the providence of God. You can't read it, I can't read it, but God certainly reads it, and He makes it known as He reveals what's happening on that clock in various ways. Certainly, we have an indication when we read in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 that Paul writes there that Christ was born into this world in the fullness of time. You have some sense that God had a definite schedule, a definite plan into which he brought his son. Now in John 12, we see that Jesus isn't just a victim being swept along. He's actually the one launching and in full control of the last events and the very last week of his life. It would be easy to think of him as a victim of circumstances. People hated him. They wanted to do away with him. They were powerful. He was an individual without a great deal of political power, at least, or human social power. And yet it seems, as you read and as you understand what's going on here, that he's really the one controlling what is going on. It's as if the cross of Calvary was for Jesus, his D-Day. And in this passage, it's as if he says, let's go. Many currents of God's timing are now converging on the climax of the ages. And we need to consider this not only, of course, for the importance 
that the cross has in general and, and as God's saving plan. But we need to consider and understand that God is still working a sovereign plan, a plan known to Him, a plan worked out through the events of providence, the events happening in nations, even through unbelievers making decisions and great national convulsions. God's plan is being worked out in the world in His appointed way. And furthermore, to see that His plan is working out in the lives of all people. It's so easy to think that our lives are just a series of random events, maybe chaotic events that seem to have no organization or order to them at all. I was thinking of the Conestoga River. Every now and then I'll look at a map and I'll marvel at the Conestoga River. It's got to be the windiest river I know about. You know, if you look at the Ohio or the Mississippi or many other great rivers, they, they don't flow straight as a die, but certainly they, you know, they, they meander some, but usually the curves are big and gradual. You've all seen, or maybe you've canoed the Conestoga, and you go 14 miles to travel one mile, you know, the snake in and out, in and out, in and out. Maybe you feel that that's what your life is like, just meandering, just moving, but not really getting anywhere, and not really under anyone's plan or in anyone's control. I would suggest to you as we look at God's sovereign control over all of history and the great event of the cross that we consider that this God holds our lives. He holds our church. He holds our nation. He holds your family. And His plan is at work, even though we often cannot read it so well. Our text suggests in the crucial verse of John 12, 23, that Jesus' crucial hour has come here. And that hour and all that it meant really was the high noon of history. And you and I as believers in Christ need to see it that way and need to interpret all times and seasons and and everything that is yet to come in our future hope as controlled by the historic sundial called the cross of Calvary which casts its shadow over every one of our lives. And either we set our life's clock to correspond to that epic event or we cannot hope to know what time it really is. Now, first of all, I would look at verses 19 through 23 here to see a a brief point, but an important one. We find here, and I'll summarize it this way, an inquiry by Gentiles that triggers Christ's final hour. It seems like an odd thing that several people called Greeks, and you can just translate the word Gentiles. It isn't important that they necessarily come from Greece, but Greeks means Gentile in this setting. These people approached Philip, who lived in a, an area northern, uh, more northerly in the, the whole uh, area of Jesus' lifespan and, and movements, and they would identify with him as one of their kinsmen, more or less, although he was a Jew. But they come and approach Philip and say an epic statement. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I want to editorially inject something just for a side path for a moment that my finger right now is pointing at a brass plate. In fact, I'm shining it up a little bit. A plate that was installed on this pulpit when this sanctuary was dedicated that has J. 
John 12, 23, inscribed on it. Sir, me, we would see Jesus. We mean this plate to tell any man who occupies this pulpit that that is his task here, to make Jesus Christ visible. But this is what these Gentiles said who came. And it seems so odd, such a little thing, that several people would be stirred as visitors to Jerusalem and they would see the probably saw the triumphal entry, they heard of the raising of Lazarus, and they thought, wow, this is amazing. Who is this man, Jesus? We'd better check this out. And so they come and look for someone who at least spoke their language or or looked like a near countryman, and they ask, can we see him? Now, I want to remind you, and one of the things I said in our earlier studies on John that you'll see this again and again, is John's use as the Holy Spirit spoke through him he loves irony. He loves things that, that seem ironic as they're put alongside each other. And that's why I began reading at verse 19, so that you would hear the Jewish leaders saying to one another how futile they feel about trying to get this movement in check. We're not doing anything. We're not accomplishing anything. Look, the whole world is gone after him. Now, that was an exaggeration, of course. But the whole world. And then what is the next thing that John points out? Several men from the whole world, not from Judaism, not from Israel. Outsiders, Gentiles, come and say, we too want to see this man. We want to know what this is all about. And this is very deliberate placement here, that that John is in effect saying, well, in a manner of speaking, exactly what the Pharisees feared was happening. The whole world was coming, and the outsiders are now asking to know Jesus. The official leaders of Israel are at their wit's end. They're baffled. They have no solutions, and they're already deciding we're going to have to kill him. Maybe we'll even have to kill Lazarus to to crush this thing. But here are foreigners coming. The larger world is starting to inquire. If you think back to John chapter 10, it was there that Jesus spoke about this very thing when, when he said there would be other sheep, he called them, not of the sheep pen of Israel, other sheep who would come to him and be his. That was predicted, and now it was happening here. You might even think about something quite a bit earlier in the life of Jesus. You all know about the Magi. You call them the wise men. They weren't kings, but they were Magi is the right term for them, magicians, who came from the eastern lands to Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. What were they? Gentiles coming to inquire about Jesus at a time when even his own people, Herod, didn't know what they were talking about when when they got there. Herod's court had no concept of what these men were asking about as Gentiles were seeking Christ. And the obvious thing is that Jesus sees this as significant. You notice in the text, Jesus doesn't even, I'm sure he probably saw these people and talked to them, but we're not even told that between 22 and 23. It says they came and asked this, and Jesus right away said an odd-sounding thing. Instead of saying, well, show them in, I'll talk to them. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Obviously, he saw in this little event that didn't mean much to the disciples, doesn't mean much to us, he saw something very important 
a sign from God. The Gentiles are beginning to seek him. And now the events that must lead to his glorification must move forward. And that means his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory that would follow. Of course, a remnant from among Judaism would continue to seek him, would continue to call him their Messiah, which he was. But now the whole thrust is wider. You see, before this, Jesus kept saying to people, it's not my hour yet. You remember that? Early in this gospel, when he changed the water into wine, and Mary, remember the stage mom, was sort of pushing him forward a little bit, saying, son, son, help them out. And he was saying, woman, don't you know it's not yet my hour? Chapter 7 of this gospel, twice he says to other things where people are urging him to do this, go, go make a great display of himself. And he says, it's not my hour. My hour hasn't come. Well, it's important then that he says, now my hour is come. Now the Gentiles, now the wider movement of the gospel, the, the floodgates are beginning to open. And these will come, and my Father now wants me to step forward and see how all the lines of prophecy that converge upon my head will come to pass. An inquiry by Gentiles triggers Christ's final hour. Secondly, though, look ahead then at verses 24 to 30, and and I will admit that these verses could use a lot more attention than I'm going to be able to give them today. But we see here, secondly, as I would summarize a point the death of Christ will be the climax of his divine glory. He says, I'm going to be glorified. He doesn't explain what that means. The Greek root word for glorify has a meaning having to do with, I'm going to be displayed. I am going to be put on a stage, in a sense, where I can be viewed and understood, and, and God can accomplish what he will accomplish out of that. And, and what is that? Well, he speaks in slightly enigmatic terms as he describes his death as a seed falling into the ground. This is like a mini parable stuck in here. People know seeds. You don't have to be an expert gardener to know about a seed and what, what you have to do with it. I, I was uh, seeding a little patch of bare ground in my lawn a, a month or so ago before the hot season came, and I did what you always do, put the seed down, and then I know you have to put straw or something on top of that, and then you have to water it, and, and then I fretted for two and a half to three weeks. All that seed will never grow. It's not going to grow. It's too sunny. Well, guess what? It grew. I didn't owe any responsibility to me for growing because that's what seeds do. And Jesus said, what am I but a seed that has to be dropped in the ground in order to sprout up and bring a life that will be a life unto the whole world? I have to die for that to happen. We would, we would think it very strange if some Amish or Mennonite farmer from our community uh, showed us in his barn maybe 10, 15 big sacks of seed corn ready to to be planted for his harvest, and he could say, look, you see those bags? That's my corn crop. I'm going to take it and sell it. And we'd say, well, wait, what? You're bypassing something here. That crop, that seed has to go in the ground and sprout up in seven-foot-tall stalks and then be cut down, and then you'll have a corn crop. Well, that's what Jesus was saying. 
my life is a seed of God that will go into the ground of the earth in an ignominious way. It'll be buried and people will think it's gone and, and it's come to nothing. And then it will sprout up and it will bring life, not just for me, but to many, many people. If, in fact, will bring life to all those who look to me and unite with me in dying unto this world and coming alive to the world to come. For that is, in a sense, what we do when we trust in him. He says you're, you're actually supposed to come and hate your life in this world. That's pretty strong language. Hate your life? Well, certainly that means that the life you're living right now in this body, the life of summer enjoyment, the life of family relationships, the life of earning money and saving for the future and whatever you're doing in your life, sure, it's important. Sure, it's valuable. But alongside the great life to come in eternity with Christ, it's almost a thing to be despised. It is of so little value because it doesn't last. You have to come and give up your life and trust in the life I will give you with this parable of the seed. The way we are united to Christ is through his death. Paul, when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, talked about Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't say Jesus Christ and his example. He didn't say Jesus Christ and obedience to the law so God will be impressed at what a good lawgiver or lawkeeper you are. He didn't say Jesus Christ and serving others. He said Jesus Christ and him crucified. His death is the center of everything that we call his glory, his triumph. His ministry is not based on a coronation. It's based on a crucifixion. His death and our belonging to him in his death is the great thing that counts. Jesus gives us a hint here about his own reaction to this whole thing. Even though he can predict it and say, the hour has come, now I'm ready to do this, he still reminds us here that he's a man. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. I'm troubled about what I'm telling you. This is not going to be an easy thing. My soul is troubled. He doesn't say so much, maybe he would have said, my body is afraid of this if all he was thinking about was the whips and the kicking and the spitting and the, and the bruising and all the abuse that he would take and the physical pain that his death would involve. But that doesn't seem to be the issue. It's his soul. The visualization of the Father's back being turned upon him and him receiving the wrath of sin from the wrath for sin that the Father had to show. It troubled his soul, and can you wonder that it did? And yet he doesn't say, I guess I have to turn away from this after all. He says, no, I can't say, Father, save me from this. I came for this. Father, glorify your name. He prays. And wonder of wonders, the little thing is buried in this text that happens next a voice is heard. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. If you're a debunker of the miracles of the Bible, then debunk away, but there it is, a bald statement. God spoke, 
And some present at least understood what was said. Some said it was thunder. Some said it was an angel. But some understood this was one of three occasions when a a supernatural voice was heard affirming Jesus. Remember the first one at his baptism? The other at his transfiguration? This is the third and only other one. The Father affirmed his Son. I will glorify it. Go forward, Son. You're doing what I want you to do. Well, as a third point today, we look at verses 31 and 32. And here we see the death of Jesus, which began judgment for everyone in the world. Judgment. It's spoken here. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now you say maybe, wait a minute, isn't judgment the punishment that God gives at the end of time when souls are brought before him and in their resurrected bodies and he consigns people to heaven or hell and and some have terrible punishment forever and others have delightful bliss forever? Isn't that the punishment? Not exactly. When the Bible uses the word judgment, it's really a word that means dividing, separating, putting things into different categories. I remember on my grandfather's farm many years ago, candling eggs. Those of you that are older in rural Lancaster County know what it is to candle eggs. They must do this by some high-tech machine today. A place like Souders turns out whatever it is, you know, a million eggs a week or something. We did it very, very simply. My grandfather had this fascinating machine. To a boy, it was a fascinating machine. You, You lined up the eggs, and they came down a trough, and then, and they went through or went past the thing with a bright light. And my job was to watch if any of them showed red because if it was red, it had blood in it and it had to be taken out. Now, it was a rare egg, so you had to pay attention. Not too many showed that, but you took out the one that had blood in it because you didn't want to sell that. You were candling. I guess they used to do it with a candle, probably why they called it that. Separating the eggs. Well, God separates souls. And that was the work Christ was appointed to do. He became the judge that separated between those who are with him by faith, who belong to him as his own adopted children, justified by grace through faith, and those who were not. And of course, one of those who was separated out was Satan, who's the engineer of all things opposed to Christ. And people will say, well, it sure doesn't seem like Satan's been eliminated today. He's still out there pretty active where I look around. But we do know that as one song says, his doom is sure. We do know that he has no final authority over a Christian today who is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Yes, he roams the earth. Yes, he deceives. Yes, he's the father of lies. Yes, he's the father of many things against Christ. But he's judged. And he is put out already from the favor of God. And that final division between those who are Christ's and those who are not is going on. There's also a statement in here as this judgment, this separating is going on. Just as Christ went down low into the earth as a seed, notice verse 32 that says he also went high as he will be lifted up from the earth. Now, lifting up could be thought of as what happened at the cross. Yes, it probably does describe that. 
It probably also infers his lifting up in his ascension. Interesting. Christ goes down as low as you can go down by being buried as a seed that dies in the soil, and he's lifted up as high as you can be lifted up in the glory of resurrection and ascension. And having had that happen, what does he do? It says he draws men and women, draws them to himself. You've all played the little games in elementary science class when you've got the iron filings and the sand mixed together on the table and somebody comes along with a big magnet and passes it over and the sand doesn't move, the sand does nothing, but the iron filings are drawn to the magnet. That's what Christ lifted up and glorified by the cross and resurrection and ascension is doing. He's drawing to himself his people. He said so clearly, and he said it repeatedly actually in a couple times in John chapter 6, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. All who are going to be saved will be saved in this manner, being drawn to Christ by the preaching of his gospel. The preaching of his gospel. I cannot tell you what a privilege it is to be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't have any power, and I don't control the power of the gospel, but God chooses foolish inadequate men like myself to be conduits of the greatest power that there is, the drawing power of God to save men and women by attraction to his cross. So great is that power that I can tell you today, I I suppose there's a CEO or some high muckety-muck position at, at Three Mile Island that controls that power plant. If they offered me that job, and I mean, it probably has a salary four times what I get paid. And I would say, you know what? I'm not interested in that job. You know why I'm not interested? It's not that it isn't more money or whatever. It's because you're in charge of something so weak. Because Three Mile Island can send out lots of electrical energy that gets a lot of light bulbs going and a lot of air conditioners spinning. And guess what? You have to keep sending it out because all your power is just temporary power. And if it isn't a continuous flow, it's no good. God has given me the incredible privilege of being the conduit of power that doesn't just light a light bulb or move an air conditioner. It changes souls. And it does that for eternity. Not for a moment, for eternity. What a privilege that the power of preaching Christ in the gospel draws men and women this way. Well, there are many applications we could make from this text. One really quick one that I I think is maybe a minor one, but one to notice is is just from the beginning. The, The idea of these several Gentiles coming and having the importance that they had in the mind of Jesus to more or less be the signal to say, my hour has come. Let that remind us that God has people appointed to come to him, to come to Christ, that you and I don't think are important. But they will come as the witness to Christ is given, and they are important to him who knew them from all eternity. But the great application here certainly is the seeing in the ebb and flow of everyday human history 
God doing his work in a timely fashion. The hour has come. God has a plan for the ages, and he's working it out. He hasn't stopped working it out. He didn't stop in the first century. He hasn't stopped yet in the 21st century. His plan is working out, and he knows what time it is. He knows what needs to happen in nations, in churches, in families, in individuals. And the most foolish people in all the world are those who join their voices with what was spoken in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, where Peter wrote about some cynical unbelievers. Here's what those people were saying. They were jesting and scoffing and saying, where is this promise of Christ's coming? Where is he? Why, we see that everything continues just the same as it has since the creation of the world. And the implication of the Word of God is, what stupidity! Nobody is dumber than the person who would say that. What do you mean everything continues as it was from the creation of the world? The hour of Christ has already dawned. The great events of Christ, His cross, His resurrection, His ascension have taken place. Look at His church multiplying against all kinds of opposition and ignorance and hatred in the world. What an absurd error. People who would say everything continues just the same are like blind moles, never getting their heads out of the tunnels they're digging themselves into. God is engineering his purposes every day, every hour, and in every single life. The biblical perspective for us to have on the times of God is the correct one given in Romans 13, 11. There Paul said this, the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than the day when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day, with a capital D, is near at hand. So let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Friends, the moment that Jesus said the hour has come, began the last days of planet Earth. I always enjoy it when somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor, do you think it's the last days? You know, they've got some kind of revelation timetable in mind when a certain date, last days kick in. I said, of course it's the last days. Ever since Jesus said the hour has come, we are in the last days. The stage is set for God's decisive act of consummation. The coming of Christ is the next great hour, and nothing holds that back from being today. Nothing whatsoever. Yes, the world goes on with evil and deceptiveness and violence and scornful mocking of the cause of Christ. But I urge you, the day is late. And you need to fly into the embrace of Jesus Christ, for with absolutely no doubt whatsoever, it is later than you think it is to the glory of God. Father, our times are in your hand. Our lives belong to you. You gave them to us in the first place. We rejoice to know that you want to give us the new life of Jesus Christ. 
that new life that came out of the strange and paradoxical episode of him being killed violently, rising wonderfully, and ascending to your right hand where he rules time and eternity today. May we not be so stupid as those people who think everything goes on the same and it's never changed. Father, lead us, draw us, hold us to Jesus Christ, close in the palm of your hand where we might know that your time for us is right. Whatever we're enduring, whatever we're looking for, whatever we're praying about, you are the God of time and eternity, and we desire to trust you and glorify the name of our Savior. Amen.